I hope and trust you were here a couple of weeks ago and we learned that Nebuchadnezzar has been afflicted by Almighty God. Now stop for a moment and think about that. Does God have a right to do that to his subjects? Think about that theological statement. Nebuchadnezzar has been afflicted by the Almighty. He's been eating grass in the field. We might say in the south he's been put out to pasture. And he has been, seriously. He's like an animal. He's living like an animal. His fingernails had become like bird's claws. And the hand of Almighty God was heavy upon him. Now think about this. Nebuchadnezzar had been warned by the word of God already at this point. And he's ignored it. He's despised it. He refused to heed God's warning in his life. And remember this. He assumed that since the judgment was not swift, then he was in the clear. Or... God had somehow forgotten. It's kind of like we act when we see the rearview mirror, right? We look in that rearview mirror, and if the cop light doesn't turn on, we're good. But, uh, you know, then it's an occasional glance, and then you just forget all the more about it. But we've learned in this chapter that God has not forgotten. He did not forget. One year later, 12 months after God gave Nebuchadnezzar the warning, he's out on his uh, rooftop, and he's basking in his own glory, He's claiming all of this was his work and his might and his power. And that we know that what God did was he brought the sentence of judgment. Verse 34 that we will begin with today is the turning point. So we're going to talk about the unrivaled sovereignty of God and human pride part 2. Which will end chapter 4. And next Sunday the 8th we're going to talk about the handwriting on the wall. Okay. And then the 15th, Brother Lazarus Surrey, who is our uh, campus, uh, well, our pastor down in Guatemala, who's doing a new church plant that our church is supporting, he's going to be preaching on the 15th. And on the 22nd, we'll leave Daniel and we'll be preaching something about the incarnation of Christ and then pick back up with Daniel at the first of the year. And the good thing about it, it we'll have Daniel in the lion's den, first sermon in the month of January for the new year. So, verse 34 is the turning point. Let's read the text together. And the end of the day, and at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted, accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Unless you haven't checked that out, that's you and me today, right? And the Bible says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right. Let that resonate in your mind. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. When Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes toward heaven, he's communicating that he's finally come to the end of himself. That's a good thing, isn't it? 
when we move our eyes from the earth, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a penalty and judgment from God, seven periods. That may mean seven years, it may not, but it's close, okay? The fact is, he now finally in humility looks with dependence upon the only one uh, that he has sinned against, the only one that can remedy his problem. He looks toward the Lord himself and not to himself. Up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar, it's been all about me, my kingdom, what I've done, but now in full dependence, and in dependence upon a God who has totally unrivaled sovereignty. So again, think of this. He's gone from gazing at the earth to lifting his eyes toward the king who comes to help him. Psalm 121. Don't don't you love that psalm? We turn our eyes toward the hills from whence comes our help and hope. So this is glorious. Now the servant understands who the master is. And he's looking with full dependence to the Lord for his help and his dependence. The scripture says that his reason returned to him. Now the point of the text is to remind us that as quickly as his affliction of insanity overcame him, that's how quickly it left him. God gave him the insanity, uh, lycanthropy or boatrophy, which is a technically it's a medical term for someone who just loses it and begins to live like an animal. But God, don't make any mistakes, God gave him this issue, this problem. And then as quickly as it came upon him, just as quickly, it leaves him. His reason comes back. And the Bible says he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he begins to extol the Lord God for his eternal rule and reign. Isn't that striking terminology and, and glorious for a pagan king who takes uh, the Israelites into exile to turn around and begin to extol the only God who exists? And of course, Nebuchadnezzar includes himself in God's rule. All the inhabitants of the earth are considered as nothing in comparison To the God who reigns and rules. It's remarkable. He recognizes the unrivaled and unquestionable authority and sovereignty of God. It's remarkable. Isaiah will tell us, as the prophet Isaiah said, God will stretch out his hand and no one can stop it. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar follows suit by saying, none can stay his hand. So what does that mean, folks? It means that God's sovereignty is unquestionable. It's unrivaled. He can do whatever he pleases. When he extends out his hand, no one in the world is big enough to stop it. That's the God that we serve. When he extends his hand, it's like marriage at the altar. It's done, right? When you say, I do, it's supposed to be done. All right? Well, when our sovereign God himself reaches forth his hand, he is absolutely unstoppable. No one can stay his hand. And his eternal kingdom knows no bounds. Notice the terminology. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Dominion speaks of the extent of his authority and rule and reign in his kingdom. And the Bible says that extent is forever. That's the God that we're dealing with here. Now there is perhaps no other doctrine that I'm speaking of the sovereignty of God that brings up more objections in our mind. Do you think for a moment that Nebuchadnezzar had a problem at first with the sovereignty of God? Now, he's one of the most powerful kings that ever lived. Do you think he thought to himself, how dare he think he can tell me what to do? 
that he's actually questioning me. I'm the king and I've done all these things. But that idea of God being sovereign and ruling was not a conviction that Nebuchadnezzar had at first. But, as you can tell from the text, it's his conviction now. That was something that was unpleasant to a pagan king to consider that there was a king with unrivaled sovereignty. Because the king on earth is supposed to have the sovereignty, right? But the fact is, there's a king in heaven who rules and reigns all things. And his, right, his sovereignty is unquestionable. So in verse 36, God restores his kingdom. Uh, you may think that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't learned because he kind of vacillates. He begins to say, my kingdom, my glory. But what he's referring to is the fact that God told him in his promise, you're going to be afflicted, but after seven periods, I'm going to give you your kingdom back. Remember that stump with a band around it? It's going to bloom again. And so he's recognizing that the kingdom has been given back to him, but I think he gets it at the end, doesn't he, for sure? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar prays and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right. He knows, who get, who, he knows who's given him the kingdom at this point. He, he, for sure, he for sure knows that God is ruling and it becomes the conviction of his heart. And at the end, our God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Y'all see it? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, question. Why did God go to such great lengths to humble Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, he could have wiped him off the face of the earth. The very first time that Nebuchadnezzar was warned and God told him that he had unquestionable, unrivaled sovereignty, he could have disposed of Nebuchadnezzar. Is that not true? I mean, if he can bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of a fiery furnace and send his son into the furnace, more than likely then for sure all he had to do was toss Oneb in there with him. And it would have been over, but he doesn't. He humbles him. Do you think God knows how big of a stick we all need as his subjects to get our attention? Amen. Folks, sovereignty means God knows all things. In every manner, what could be possibilities, all things. He knows your thoughts even before you think them. That's the God that we serve. So surely, God knew exactly how big of a stick Nebuchadnezzar needed on his backside. To get his attention. Our God knew full well that it would take insanity. It would take seven periods uh, away from humanity. Living as an animal for Nebuchadnezzar to finally get it. Now my question to you was, was Nebuchadnezzar actually converted to Christ or the Lord in, da in Daniel chapter 4? This is the last time we're going to hear of Nebuchadnezzar. You won't hear of him anymore throughout the book of Daniel. Old Testament scholars are divided and commentators are divided on whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was transformed by the grace of God and became a believer. But here's what we know from the testimony of Scripture. And you can make your own choice or decide on it. There are four distinct times when God works in his life. In chapter 2, it's the statue and the dream and it's Daniel's interpretation. That's the first time that he actually personally, through the word and through his prophet, hammers Nebuchadnezzar with the truth of who God is. And then you have in chapter 3 the golden image. And you have the three Hebrew boys that, well, with the fourth man, right, in the midst of the fiery furnace that shows up. And Nebuchadnezzar at the, this point actually blesses and extols the God of the Hebrews 
who alone, he says, is able to deliver his people. Okay? In chapter 4, there's another dream. And then Daniel gives that interpretation. And then finally, there's this fourth and final one, finale, we might say, where God actually judges him and actually humbles him to the ground. So in all four of these episodes where God is speaking to him, we actually see Nebuchadnezzar making some progress. The first time in chapter 2, he says, Truly your God is a God of gods, Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries. Mm, we can look at that and say there's a tinge of uh, pantheistic view there that, that maybe this God just fits into his plethora of other gods, right? Because he's using plurality and gods of gods, lords of lords, things like that. At the end of chapter 3, he's a God who rescues his servants. He actually says that he alone can save. No, no one alone can save like this. At the end of chapter 4, he's the God of absolute sovereignty and authority. Some will say that Nebuchadnezzar was certainly converted. Some just say, well, he just adds Yahweh God to his pantheon of gods. What do we say about a king who was humbled by God and makes this kind of miraculous, uh, incredible statement? You understand that Nebuchadnezzar has more understanding than 90% of Southern Baptists on the sovereignty of God. He does. I'm not, being, I'm not being funny, but it's true. He knows the sovereignty of God, and if he's unconverted, that's, a, that's really bad against you and me. For him to trust the sovereignty of God as a lost person, more than 90% of the people inside of this church building today. And here's a pagan king who understands that God Almighty is absolutely sovereign. So he's showing some progress. Was he savingly transformed by the Lord at this point? Well, my guess would be 70, 30. 70%, I believe Nebuchadnezzar will be in glory. 30%, I don't. If you push me, I might go 75, 25. I don't know. But that's still better than 50, 50. How do we know? We have to leave this into the hands of the sovereign God. God alone knows if Nebuchadnezzar came to know the Lord. So what do we learn from this chapter? Now, when I say chapter, I know I'm including all that I preached in chapter 4 before. But that's okay. I need to give you thematic summaries of what's in the book of Daniel in chapter 4. And that's what I want to do. Notice first uh, how Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37 extols the Lord. Why does he do this? Well, he understands, he should understand that he's going to be off his throne soon. He's not going to live forever. He's going to die. But guess what? King Jesus is still on his throne. Right? Kings come and go. But king, our king is still on his throne. But here's what he says about him. All his works are true. Do y'all believe that this morning? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar says that. Verse, all his works are true. Check this out. All his ways are just. You ever find yourself questioning, where, where are you, Lord? And why are you doing this certain thing? Why is this happening to me? Well, you need to rehearse this in your mind. All his ways are true. All his ways are just. And then the Bible says he humbles those who walk in pride. I am thankful for the warnings when that awful malignancy of pride begins to ooze out of my life. I'm thankful for the warning. Aren't you? He could kill us. He could take everything we've got away from us. He can do whatever he wants to. And yet he warns us. And I hope if God is warning you today about pride, you will heed the warning. All right, three things. Number one, remember that God is sovereign. Have I said that? I mean, it's in your notes there. Remember that he's sovereign. This is clear in the book of Daniel. Arthur Pink wrote a book, a classic, called The Sovereignty of God. And he opens every single paragraph in his introduction with this question. 
who regulates the affairs on earth today? And then he says this, is it God or is it the devil? Well, how does God thunder back in Daniel 4? Who rules all things? God does. God rules it all. His dominion, his extent of his dominion, he rules it all. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Folks, who, to answer Arthur Pink, who regulates the affairs of the world? God does. God does. He governs and regulates the affairs. These exiles, think about this, were away from the holy city. They could turn their shoulder, turn their head over their shoulder and see the smoke coming out of Jerusalem. Man, think about that. Do you think that the Israelites thought at that moment, God, where are you? I mean, our city is going up in smoke. You've sent us over here into Babylon as, as exiles. Where are you? Is that not a common question when our life begins to fall apart? And if you've ever watched TV, when we have a natural disaster, whether it's a tornado or a hurricane, or if we have a terrorist attack or something like that, even pagan people who never ever mention God and don't think about God, never have thought about God, but they'll ask this question, well, where was your God? Where was God when all this took place? Now just stop and listen. The next time there's a natural disaster or a terrorist attack, you have godless people asking that very question. But Daniel, through the lips of a pagan king, says, I'll tell you where God is. He's on his throne. And you need to be reminded of that, folks. You need to be reminded every single day that God is sovereign. Check this out. His ways are true. His ways are just. And he humbles those who walk in pride. The thing that God hates in Proverbs 6 is the sin of pride. When you think that you control all things, that you can do your own, have your own way and do all your own things, whatever you want to do, God hates the sin of pride. It's a shot against the fact that God is sovereign. But His sovereignty, His kingdom knows no boundaries. He, know, he has no rivals. His authority knows no end. Now folks, here's the deal. If old King Nebuchadnezzar could come to understand this, the people of God under trial and oppression should also recognize this. If Nebuchadnezzar could see this, we as the people of God ought to see it as well. In the difficulties of life, in trial, in oppression. On one hand, there's nothing more humbling than to embrace the absolute sovereignty of God. Is that not true? But it's also the most comforting thing you will ever wrap your mind around. I don't have to worry about what's going on in my life or the world. If I'm doing exactly what God Almighty has called me to do, all I have to do, even when I'm not, I still, the only thing I have to do is lean upon His understanding and not mine. It is the most humbling thing to know that God is absolutely sovereign, but at the same time, it is the most comforting thing. It'll make a difference on your Mondays when you know God is sovereign. Are y'all listening? I see a few heads going up and down. Some of you are kind of going like this. But boy, your Mondays are different. When God is on His throne and you know it. There's no chance. There's no such thing as luck or fate. Only providence. So don't walk up to your preacher and say, you're just lucky. Or y'all were lucky. No such thing. I don't like to hear that word because it doesn't exist. Chance has the power to do nothing. Because it is nothing. Either God does control and regulate all things. 
in heaven and earth, or he doesn't. You don't have any other options. So the doctrine is the sweetest when times are difficult. When your life's falling apart, you only have a few options. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, either we have a devil that God can't control. That's one. Or there's no meaning in the universe. And this is just just, this is just random chance. Everything has happened randomly. Or there's an all-wise, all-sovereign God who rules the affairs of men, who governs our lives, and He does so for His absolute glory and for your good. You understand that Romans 8 will never mean for you what it's supposed to mean until you get a handle on the fact, why can God say all things work, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Why can God say that? Because God controls it all. He couldn't say that if He didn't control it all. Are y'all listening? Y'all got it? That's the first thing that we need to learn from Daniel 4. God is sovereign. Don't forget it. It is humbling to know that God is in control and you're not. But it's also the most comforting doctrine you can ever imagine in your mind and heart to know that no matter what your life's, what you're going through in your life, no matter what's falling apart, God is sovereign. Now check out Romans 8:28. And we know that all things work together for good. There's two qualifiers. For those that, and those who are, all right, folks, you ought to live like it. If you love God, and you're called according to His purpose, then we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to those who are called, what a blessing to be called according to His purpose. He's sovereign. Number two, resist the awful sin of pride. Daniel 4 not only reminds us that God is in control, but it also exposes that awful sin of pride. Shame on us if we just look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, wow, what a rotten dude. I mean, he just couldn't get it. Warning after warning after warning, and he still walks out on his palace uh, rooftop, and he is basking in his own glory, and we're like, don't do it! You've been told 12 months ago not to do this, but now you're doing it. So here's the reality. When you look at your own life, and the things you have, and you say, by my ability and my achievements, I've accomplished this, that's called pride, and you're no better than Nebuchadnezzar. Are y'all listening? You may look at your children. Oh, I say this with a heavy heart, always. And prayerfully, they've turned out okay. But you may look at your children, and you may say, Ooh, look what my hands have done, aren't I special? All my kids are just doing so great. They're wonderful. They're awesome. The moment you do that, you know better than Nebuchadnezzar. Not a single one of your kids would turn out right unless it was God's sovereign will and grace to do it. And we're supposed to do our part, but I'm telling you, you better give the credit to who the credit's due to. Right? The credit's due to Almighty God. You may look at your career and think, Ooh, with my hard work, this is what I have accomplished with my hands. I've done it with a little elbow grease and pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. And I am my own person, and this is what I've accomplished. When you do that, you're no better than Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you have lots of stuff around, a lot of toys. We men like those, don't we? And we look and we poke, puff our chest out. Look what we've got. You're no better than Nebuchadnezzar. What about if you've got a stellar education? You may have more degrees than a thermometer. And you say, wow, 
Look what I've done. Man, I've studied hard. Uh, I've gone through all these classes, and I've endured these things and suffered, and I've done it. Look at me. I've done it with my own ability. You're no better than Nebuchadnezzar. You may be an incredible athlete, and no matter what ball you pick up, you're just good. Period. And you may think, well, that's just me. Who made LeBron James? You ever notice that professional athletes are the most arrogant people you will ever see? Who made LeBron James? Who made Mike Trout? How is it that a man can have the eye and hand coordination to smack a ball with a little bitty stick going 100 miles an hour? Mike Trout did not make himself. And all these athletes will find out one day they didn't. But you, you pray that they would bow to the king before it's everlastingly too late. Think about this for a moment. Johnny Cash wrote a song called Empire of Dirt. That's exactly what's going to be left. You know, folks, you do realize this. No matter what you have, one day you're going to die. And there are people going to spend your money that didn't do anything to earn it. That ought to make you feel good. They're going to spend every dime of it because you can't take it with you. It's an empire of dirt if you're not building up treasures in heaven. What did Jesus say? Moth and rust and everything else is going to corrupt everything on earth. But lay up treasures in heaven where those things can't touch it. Right? Wow. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. I think Nebuchadnezzar would have been uh, reading some Proverbs had they been written, or if they had been, some of them for sure have been around. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will attain honor. The Lord will tear down the house of pride. And we know pride, folks, is so incredibly deceptive. It's an undetected sin. Like I said a few weeks ago, we love to have that pride radar. Oh, that person's so prideful. But yet, we don't use the same radar on ourselves. And we can't tell when that sin is there. What's, what is inside of us, many, many times it's absolutely rank, and yet we want to point it out in someone else's life. God says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, and pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Well, that's strong language for God to say I hate. Proverbs eight thirteen. James tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says to clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Woo! Do you think Nebuchadnezzar did that? Mighty hand of God, affliction. And I think God will go to great lengths to root that pride out of us as his people. If you're saved, you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this area. May God have mercy on all of us when we don't see that pride in us. So look, in contrast to the sovereign God who controls all things... My third point is, respond with the grace of humility. So the first one, God is sovereign. The second one, awful sin of pride. Resist it. But thirdly, respond with the, great, with the grace. And I say it, it is a grace given to you. It's called humility. But notice Nebuchadnezzar. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as... Say it. It's you. Go ahead and say it. It's you. Nothing. Are y'all reading the same thing I'm reading? Now think about that for a moment. That's the grace of humility. God, you are sovereign, unquestionably. 
and the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Boy, we need the right view of ourselves in America. We need the right view of ourselves daily if we're going to understand what it means to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So, there is a kind of a counterfeit humility that exists in Baptist life. I'll go ahead and call it because you are. They focus, people began to focus so much on their unworthiness that they are still the center of their own universe. I see people like this all the time in church. Woe is me. I'm just a humble person. And the whole time you are still, we're, it's your world, we're just walking through it, right? Because you're still focused on yourself. Remember, humility is not simply thinking less of ourselves. Humility is thinking of ourselves less. There's a major difference. It's to take our eyes off self. It's to lift our eyes to heaven. It's to lift our eyes to the Lord with full dependence and trusting. Here it is, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. This is the grace of humility. To actually say God is in control. Mm. Whatever He ordains is right. And I'm going to humbly bow my heart to Him. No matter what it is. And I'm going to depend on Him for everything. I'm going to trust in Him for everything. This is called the grace of humility. Trust the Lord with all your heart. and Lean not on your own understanding. I trust that He will make my path straight. So where are you in this issue? Humility. Humbling yourself. How, how does this mesh with resisting that sin of awful pride? Well, humility says, God, you know what's best for my life. Let me give you something that's relevant for our young people. You might not think that this is prideful, but I want to remind you it is. How many times do young people say today, I can do with my body what I want to, and you're not going to tell me? I can do with my life what I want to do with my life, and no one's going to tell me any different. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, listen, whom you have from God who gave you your life, who gave you your body. Is anybody listening? Right? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Amen. So glorify God with your body. It's not yours. Next time you think about putting something in that body that you know full well is against the mandate of Scripture, there ought to be a check in your spirit that you are an awful person of pride if you think you know what better to do with your body than God does. That's pride. Straight up pride against the God of heaven when you say, oh, it's mine. It's, I can do whatever I want to. No, you can't. You've been bought with a price if you're a child of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body that he gave you. Mm. The understanding we get from Scripture. The reason we struggle so much with pride is because we don't like to be given free gifts sometimes. I'm bringing this over to the conclusion because everything in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, should have a Christ-centered understanding. Is that not right? Do you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a humbling message? Do y'all know that? It beckons us to come. And lift our eyes to the only source of our salvation. And you can't bring nothing in your hands to get it. But our pride says, oh, I want to work to get it. 
or I want to work to keep it. It's a humbling message because the gospel begins with a humble servant. It's my favorite Christmas text. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Wow. Philippians 2. The Son of God did not consider his equality with the Father something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation coming in the form of a servant. I'm telling you, the gospel is a humbling message because it starts with the greatest humbling servant of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself. He didn't have to leave the confines of his kingdom in glory. But yet, for our sakes, he made himself of no reputation. You know what that is? That's called Christmas. That's called the Incarnation. We must fall at his feet in order to have the greatest need you could ever have met. And that's the, that's the need of forgiveness of sins. And a right standing before God. You do not understand, folks, that without humility, without bowing yourself to the message of the gospel, you'll never have a right standing before God. You can't have your sins forgiven unless you bow your heart and mind and soul to Jesus only to forgive you of your sins. That's humbling, isn't it? You can't come bartering or trading for it. You come gladly receiving it as a free gift from Almighty God. We receive this gift, the sacrifice of Christ freely. And we have, a, we, have, we have such a hard time receiving things like that. Because when we do, we know full well that it's a statement about you and a statement about me. The statement is, you have the gift and I'm needy and I need it. Well, we don't like that. But I'm telling you, you can't be saved without that understanding. It's the, it's the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You have to humble yourselves in order to have that need met. Forgiveness of sins which Jesus already procured for us on Calvary. Amen? Already done. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the very heart of the gospel message. No bartering, no trading, no exchanging. You receive it with open hands freely. Nothing in my hands I bring, as the old song says. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. A submission to Jesus Christ. Submitting, yielding. But the problem is we won't control just ask the men in this church, who drives your car when everybody's in there as the family? Some of you whippersnappers might have your wife drive, but most of us, we say, I'm driving. I want to be in control. Don't look at me so spiritual. You know what that remote control is in your house? It's the scepter of your palace. And you want to control that remote, right? We're control freaks. We want to be in control. And we're often blinded by our pride. That old adage, I want Jesus to be my co-pilot. You better get that out of your mind. You know what that means? If I get in trouble, I can just depend on him to get me out of my situation. That's not trust whatsoever. He has to be in full control or he's not in control at all. He's God. He's sovereign. So humble yourself. Bow your head. Bow your knee to the king. Humble yourself. Think about the audacity of the pride that we have if we think we can control our lives better than the Lord Jesus Christ who made us and came to save us. That's the height of pride. I know full well what I can do with my life. I don't need this Jesus telling me what to do. That's pride, ladies and gentlemen. You didn't, you didn't realize how pride works when it comes to redemption and salvation, did you? Well, folks... Uh, have you thought about the sin of garden variety? It's called the Garden of Eden. 
What was that? Nothing but pride. Nothing but pride. Plunged humanity into sin. Mm. We need to pray that God would take full control of our lives. So I invite you with joy and gladness to submit to Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to convert people from God-like dependence on self to childlike dependence on God. And he died to pay the penalty for our pride and to show us the way to humility and to send all our boasting toward God and not toward ourselves. John Piper. John Piper's statement. Ooh, some of us have God-like dependence this morning on self. Jesus came to deliver you from God-like dependence on self so that you have God-dependence on Him for your salvation and the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the end, all boasting goes to the Lord. All glory goes to our God. So it is. Remember the sovereignty of God. Resist the awful sin of pride and respond with the grace of humility before God. Amen? Great God, we thank you, Father, for your love for us. Lord, it's not popular nor fun to preach on pride because we all have it in some way. God, turn the light of your word on our hearts through the power of the Spirit and convict us. All of us have struggles, Lord, in this area. But I would pray today, through the leadership of your Holy Spirit and the sovereign God of the universe, you are, and your work through your Spirit and your word, would you convict hearts about the sin of pride? And if there's someone lost today, Would you take away that pride and may they fall before you and trust totally in the work of Jesus on the cross. It's a humbling message. It's humbling to think about the king of the world dying upon a cross. It's humbling to think that we have to be forgiven of our sins in order to go to heaven, but that's exactly what the Bible says. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done but it's according to His mercy that He has saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Only you can save. And Lord, would you do that today if it would please you in your sovereign will. And Lord, help us as Christians. Father, help us as believers to have an inkling of the same understanding of the sovereignty of God that Nebuchadnezzar ended his life with. You control all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.